This episode is sponsored by Rackspace. Are you looking for a place to host your latest creation? Want terrific support, high performance, all backed by the largest open source cloud? What if you could try it for free? Try out Rackspace at rubyrogues.com Rackspace and get a $300 credit over six months. That's $50 per month at rubyrogues.com Rackspace. This episode is sponsored by Codeship.io. Don't you wish you could simply deploy your code every time your test passed? Wouldn't it be nice if it were tied into a nice continuous integration system? That's Codeship. They run your code. If all your tests pass, they deploy your code automatically for fuss-free, continuous delivery. Check them out at Codeship.io. Continuous delivery made simple. This episode is sponsored by Hired.com. Every week on Hired, they run an auction where over a 1,000 tech companies in San Francisco, New York, and L.A., bid on Ruby developers, providing them with salary and equity up front. The average Ruby developer gets an average of 5 to 15 introductory offers and an average salary offer of $130,000 a year. Users can either accept an offer and go right into interviewing with the company or deny them without any continuing obligations. It's totally free for users, and when you're hired, they also give you a $2,000 signing bonus as a thank you for using them, but if you use the Ruby Rogues link, you'll get a $4,000 bonus instead. Finally, if you're not looking for a job but know someone who is, you can refer them to Hired and get a $1,337 bonus if they accept a job. Go sign up at Hired.com slash Ruby Rogues Podcast. Snap is a hosted CI and continuous delivery service that goes far beyond letting you do continuous deployment. Snap's first-class support for deployment pipelines lets you push any healthy build to multiple environments automatically and on demand. This means with Snap, you can deploy your staging environment today, verify it works, and later deploy the exact same build to production. Snap deploys your application to cloud services like Heroku, DigitalOcean, AWS, and many, many more. You can also use Snap to push your gems to Ruby Gems. Best of all, setting up your build is simple and intuitive. Try Snap free for 30 days. Sign up at snapci.com slash rubyrogues. Hey, everybody, and welcome to episode 166 of the Ruby Rogues podcast. This week on our panel, we have James Edward Gray. I am half of this podcast. I'm Charles Maxwood from devchat.tv, and this week it's just us. Yay! I mean, no, boo, where is everybody? (laughs) (laughs) So, truth be told, we did try and record another episode earlier, and it just didn't quite work out, but it took up enough time to where Saran had to take off, and uh, yeah, the other other rogues had other things going on, so it's just us. That's okay. We can can handle it. That's right. So, uh, James had the terrific idea of talking about polyglot programming and learning other languages. Yeah, I'm kind of interested in that right now. I um, so I guess I can kind of tell you how this started. A couple of days ago, I I made a tweet that was, uh, I believe it said, "Go Elixir Rust or Closure?" Question mark. That was my entire tweet, and it was it was pretty big actually. I got lots of response that. People telling me what they thought about each one, or some people clearly picking one, or uh, some people saying, that's a silly question. You can't, you know, like, ask a question like that without knowing what kind of problem you're trying to solve, or something like that. And and, um, all of those responses were very interesting. And I actually had a reason for making the tweet, but I guess first, let's, I'll just put the question to you, Chuck. Go, Elixir, Rust, or Closure? Which one? Well, of all of those, I've tried two. Which two? I have tried Elixir and Closure, and yeah, they're both pretty different. They are interesting in the sense that Elixir runs on the Airlink virtual machine, and um, and so it's sort of functional and sort of something else. Um, and Clojure is basically Lisp with modern data structures. Right. And so I think they're interesting. I have to say that Clojure was a little easier for me to pick up because I've been playing with Scheme for the last few months. And right. so the Lispness of it was pretty familiar. But yeah, I, I like them. I think they're interesting. I haven't done anything production-like in them yet. So uh, I'll tell you a little bit behind my uh, my reason for doing this. First of all, I, I don't really agree uh, with the people that said, you can't say that because, you know, it depends on what you're trying to do. What if what I was trying to do is learn new things or think about things new ways, right? That seems like a valid goal to me. When we had Dave Thomas on recently, he talked about this thing that he's, he's pushed since the Pragmatic Programmer, which... Uh, 
you know, you should learn a new language a year. And in particular on our show, he said, you should try to pick something that, that stretches and bends your mind, you know, that pushes you in new directions. And uh, I think that was kind of how I was trying to go with this. And I feel like in your answer there, just then you talked about how Elixir and Closure both did kind of stretch her mind in new ways a little bit, wouldn't you say? Yeah, definitely. Especially, and I have, I have to admit, I haven't done a whole lot with Elixir, but you know, just the way that the the languages are different, I have, I have to say that my programming experience has primarily been Ruby and JavaScript, and so you know, Elixir was quite the departure from that. And you know, so things like pattern matching and stuff like that, you know, where I I played with that for a long time because I thought it was really cool, and you know, it's nice because then I start looking for solutions like that in Ruby and JavaScript and seeing how I can apply that back. Yeah, I think I think that's exactly uh, the reason I like to play around with different languages. And, and I admit that a lot of times I will go play with a language for a while and then come back to Ruby, which is obviously my favorite. I feel like I bring those new ideas back with me. And then, you know, I, I'm able to think about Ruby in new ways or, or try to use it for things I haven't tried to use it before mm-hmm. or things like that, that my brain has expanded a little bit, as Dave Thomas would say. Yeah. One other thing that uh, comes to mind with this is that I created a study group out here in Utah. So we, we read The Little Schemer, which is a book about scheme and it teaches you scheme. And the thing that was interesting was that I decided to go back one day for, I, I spent like a half hour, maybe an hour doing this, but um, I was like, all right, well, I'm going to try and write scheme in Ruby. And so, you know, I was defining procs <laughs> and naming them. Everywhere. And, yeah. yeah. And, uh, you know, and so then it's, you know, stacking them up the right way and using recursion to solve issues. And it's it's not it the way that I would do things. It doesn't work out as well in Ruby, does it? No, <laughs> it's, a, it's a lot more verbose as well. But, you know, it was interesting because it's like, okay, I can see where this goes. And you start to understand, too, like how things like the um, enumerable module and stuff like that really work because you can see that um, it really does kind of reach into that functional p- paradigm and take advantage of the strengths there and, you know, also realize that, you know, there really is this functional core in Ruby that a lot of times we just kind of take for granted because we just use each or some variant of it and just assume that it does what it does. Yeah, I think that what you just said there is really interesting. Like, I read The Little Schemer, too, uh, and it's a great book. It's uh, one of those great books, not because it teaches you scheme. Like, I don't generally run into people that are like, oh, yeah, I do my work in scheme. It's more that you learn scheme to uh, change how you think about computer problems and solving them and the steps that you go through. I I feel it's more valuable than that. And like you, I came back to Ruby and it's like, all right, we can do this. Let's just lambda all of the things, right? (laughs) Yeah. But it doesn't work. Like, and I love that. That's actually one of my favorite things is that it's like, oh, you can do this. Yeah, you can kind of do this. But, you know, you're, you're quickly going to hit a wall because, uh, languages like Scheme, they do things like tail recursion optimization and stuff like that so that they can do really deep, uh, recursive calls. And Ruby, because it just uses, uh, the C stack does not have that. Um, and it can run out of stack. And then you're like, oh, my program doesn't work anymore. And there are ways around that, uh, of course, but all of those are going to move you away from like a pure functional approach and more toward a Ruby approach, which, you know, surprise, Ruby has its own way of doing things. But like you said, Ruby inherits a lot of these heavy functional concepts, like the iterators and stuff like that, which were out now I think starting to see in a lot of languages, you know, I think a lot of languages have learned the value of that. And so you have these concepts that you bring back and the different ways that you think about things, but also, you know, trying to write any one of those languages in any of the other languages uh, usually turns out to be painful for various reasons that I think can also be instructive. Yep, definitely. Uh, another one is just JavaScript. I mean, central to most JavaScript programming is the run loop that it, that it has. And so, you That's know, dealing with the asynchronous stuff and the callbacks and all that, all of that, 
you know, and then coming back to Ruby and trying something like Event Machine and seeing where it's the same and where it's different. You know, th- there are so many things that you can pick up from these other languages. And it's funny, too, because you can also see where other languages borrow from Ruby. So, for example, on the JavaScript Jabber podcast, we talked to a couple of guys about the Koa framework. And I'm not sh- sure if you're familiar with that. I don't know it, no. Um, but it, it's a Node.js framework, and it's effectively Rack in JavaScript. And it's based on co- coroutines or generators, which are sort of like fibers, which is where it kind of diverges a little bit. And, you know, that made me think for a while, gee, what if we built our rack apps on fibers or threads or what would be the consequences there? Yeah, is it more, I'm assuming because it's Node, is it more reactive instead of, you yeah, know? Yeah, but it, it it's a lot more synchronous as well because it effectively does yield up the middleware stack the same way Rack does. Huh, interesting. Yeah, I think there's a lot of value in, in learning stuff like that. So, yeah, to uh, ruin the surprise, actually, uh, my tweet was built because a friend of mine and I, uh, our wives get together once a month to do this activity, and so we have some free time. And starting in August, we decided we'd like to play around with some new language that would would bend our brain in different ways and see what we could learn. And so those uh, languages that I threw out after some initial weeding out of, of other options, that was kind of the ones we were considering at that point. So yeah, so we're doing that to learn something new. And I've done that many times over the years. I played with Erlang quite a bit, uh, which is very interesting from a process processes and actors and stuff in Erlang are just totally mind-blowing and and really great to play with. Whereas on the other hand, as I I think I said in the Dave Thomas episode, I'm much less fond of Erlang syntax and and I find it tedious and kind of annoying uh, in some ways. But it's neat to go look through all those things. And even I've spent time just learning like complementary languages fairly deep, like regular expressions or bash. Mm-hmm. I feel like both of those made me much stronger programmer, uh, figuring out regular expressions and batch and such. Yeah, I can definitely see that. I mean, they're, they're tools that you're using regularly kind of around inside or outside of your Ruby ecosystem. Right. And, and they're very different, right? Like bash is really good at like controlling processes and sending the output of this thing here or, you know, things like that. And, and there's just a lot you can do. I, there's things I learned, uh, you know, still to this day that I can't live without, like being able to diff the output of two processes, uh, because you can run the processes in these kind of little subshells and just get the output and diff them. And it's great. Yeah, there's a lot of interesting stuff about that. So do you find yourself doing much bash programming then? No, I don't. That's a good question. Like, I I don't do a lot of like, like, I think Avdi just gave a talk at at Midwest IO where he uh, wrote a web app in bash or something like that to, you know, (laughs) show the, show the, how far you can go in that. And I'm pretty sure he, he labeled that as probably not a great idea, but still it's kind of interesting that you can, you know, we've definitely seen big programs written that way, like early versions of RBM, though I think mm-hmm. they're kind of moving away from that some. But I don't tend to do a lot of bash programming. I do uh, like to automate things, and so I will uh, write simple functions in my dot files and stuff like that that, that make simple choices for me or things like that. But I, I don't tend to write a lot of just like, you know, full bash scripts that uh, that do a particular thing. Mm-hmm. So I'm I'm a little curious. Your list. I don't remember the four languages: Go, Erlang, Clojure, and something else. Uh, Elixir and Rust uh, was it, not uh, Erlang. Elixir, but oh, Elixir, yeah, and yeah. Rust. Mm-hmm. So how did you how did you narrow it down to those four? Yeah, so that's a good question. Um, we were we were going for again the brain expanding stuff and trying to find new ways to think about things. And actually, our, our list was bigger than that. Uh, we had Haskell on there at one point. Maybe that was it. We may have talked about a few others in passing or something. But um, most of them were chosen because they're significantly different than what we do currently. So uh, both uh, my, uh, me and my friend, we uh, work in Ruby, m- doing web programming, uh, building a big web application. That's what we do. 
So we wanted to try different stuff. So Go and Rust, uh, we chose primarily because as options because they're kind of lower level languages, more like system programming languages. And, you know, I've, I've played around with C various times and I don't love it. Um, but, <laughs> but it's interesting. You know, it, it is really fun to write a loop in C and watch it go crazy, crazy fast, you know, or something. It's um, also fun to watch other people write C and pull their hair out when their right. uh, pointers don't go to the right place. <laughs> right, exactly. Or they forget to dereference them. So that's a great thing right there. You talked about why C is so painful that, you know, there's just no kind of checking, no safety, no um, no anything, pointer math. Ah, it's all terrible. Go and uh, Rust are more modern, right? They're more uh, low-level system languages, still keep the speed, but now, you know, they're safe and or or at least safer, I guess I should say, you know, have uh, various guarantees and stuff. I I read this great article the other day about Rust. I'll try to find it to put it in the show notes. But it was about how, you know, in Ruby, you can set some variable and then you can make a bunch of threads and have them try to modify that variable. And uh, if you do it fast enough, you're going to notice that some of them succeeded in modifying it correctly and some of them didn't. And that's because... You know, if a thread does something like fetch a variable and add one to it, those are two different steps. So if these two threads are moving fast enough and switching back and forth, then sometimes, you know, the number's probably at 40 right now, and thread A fetches it and gets 40, but then before it can increment it and put it back, thread B fetches it and still gets 40, you know, A adds one to it and gets 41. B adds one to it and gets 49. They both assign it back and you lost a number in there. You know, mm-hmm. you get 41 where you should get 42. In Rust, if you try to write the exact same program, that's a compile time error. Uh, it will actually refuse to compile your code and tell you, hey, you can't modify this variable in another process. That's not safe. so that was really cool right it's a different way to think about things will it let you do it if you put a semaphore or something around it uh yeah you have to you have to use some kind of uh you know synchronization a lock or um or uh sending messages uh, i believe so yeah uh, you can do it if it's safe but you can't do it you know uh Unsafely, so that was uh, very interesting. And then Go is is maybe less safe like that, but it's a little farther along. Rust is still very not one o yet, and is still changing a lot. And the documentation on the internet's in all kinds of states of um, uh, may or may not match the version that exists today. Uh, whereas Go is more mature; it's uh, it's being used by companies and stuff like that. So. It, you, we were looking at those two languages for that reason. Elixir, like you said, uh, I think the primary reasons would be, you know, the functional aspect of it and the pattern matching and uh, the ability to play with Erlang's processes without having to uh, put up with Erlang syntax. Um, so that was the reason we were considering Elixir. Haskell we briefly considered because it's kind of the pure functional language. Uh, so it's a good brain bender for a very different uh, way of doing things. But I think we kind of ruled it out because we feel like Haskell is probably a little more academic and a little less practical. We don't see it used in a lot of places, and we would like to learn something that's even kind of a little bit practical. I'm, I'm sure we'll get hate mail from that. I'm sorry, Haskell fans. My apologies. <laughs> and then the, uh, the other... Yeah, closure for being, you know, uh, Lisp, like you said, I, I love Lisps. I, um, program Emacs Lisp quite a bit to customize Emacs. So, uh, it's a more modern Lisp and, uh, the immutable data structures and, and stuff like that. And I think there's just a lot of cool things in the, uh, closure ecosystem. Like EDN, I believe, is their like data format that, as kind of like JSON, but it includes the schema and stuff with the data, uh, which is kind of interesting. And Clojure Script is a compiler uh, that compiles Clojure, some Clojure down to JavaScript. Yeah. Um, so yeah, just it, it kind of a neat ecosystem with lots of tools to play with. And these are just languages we thought of. I threw out some. My buddy threw out some. You know, I'm sure. If other people sat down to do this exact same exercise, they would throw out a different set of uh, languages. For example, 
I think a lot of people are learning Swift right now. Have you played with it at all? I haven't had a chance. But yeah, but given that I do some iOS programming, yeah, it's definitely on my list. Right? Looks cool, right? Yeah. So uh, I think a lot of people would have had that on their list. Uh, we're more a free, open language kind of set of guys, so it, it's less appealing to us. But um, but yeah, a lot of people are playing with that and learning a lot. And I think that's kind of the point of polygot programming is that you you'll pick what's interesting to you or what you think will expand your brain in new ways and um, and that there's a lot of value to that. Yeah, definitely. And and I have to say, I mean, just with my experience, um, I mean, I've in college I did Java, C plus plus, and C. Um, got into Ruby after I graduated and got a job. Um, I was also a systems administrator, so Bash was kind of a thing that I did, you know. And and all of these things have kind of colored what what I what I do and how I do it and how I learn about this stuff. Um, I mean, I am kind of curious when you pick a new language, do you? How do you go about learning it? Do you pick up a book? Do you go through tutorials or watch videos? Or do you just, you know, open up a REPL and just start banging on it? That's a good question, actually, because in the past, I'm kind of a traditionalist. So I will typically go and grab the the pickaxe-like equivalent in that language, you know, and just work my way through it and kind of pick it up that way. That said, I've never done a language study uh, really with another person before. So that's definitely going to change something when the two of us uh, do this together. Uh, like, you know, would we both read the same chapters of the same book and then come back and talk about it? I think that would probably be less cool. I'm actually envisioning maybe we would both study from a different source each week or something, you know, find a tutorial that he liked and find a tutorial that I like or something like that work on that, and then we came together, maybe walk the other person through the particular thing we were playing with, right? Mm -hmm. It seems to me like you you could probably do better that way because then having to internalize what you're learning and then be able to teach it to the other person, I think would probably get you farther uh, than just, you know, both of you reading over the same material, talking about what you liked and nodding at each other, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah. I tend to take the same approach. I'll pick up the, the book, whatever it is. Um, the other thing that I like to do is work through videos. And the last thing I always do this when I'm learning a new language is I, I start a new project in it and, and build something. I think Dave Thomas said that in his episode where he said that I build a markdown or markup compiler or translator or whatever. Yeah, and that's so hardcore. Like, yeah. <laughs> I, I just build a markdown parser. It's like, Dave, markdown's a horrible thing to parse. What are you talking about? Uh, no, I think that's really cool. Yeah, and you're so right. Like, playing with a language in a book or something, you know, you, you may start to get the hang of it. But until you're practically using it for something, it's very difficult to understand the trade-offs and and how you're you're thinking about things and stuff. So yeah, I agree that the practical project is uh, very valid. I also like what you said about videos. That didn't actually used to be a thing for me. I got really into Destroy All Software when that was going, and then Avdi's Ruby Tapas is just tr sensational. If you haven't seen both of those, uh, you are missing some of the cool stuff in Ruby, in my opinion. Um, I agree. And, totally agree. Yeah, they're great. And then in, in some of these other languages we're looking at, I haven't looked at, at all of them, but Elixir, I know for sure, has a Elixir Sips, which is kind of like Ruby Tapas, so that would be nice to be able to... Uh, uh, use that as a learning tool. Yeah, those uh, are the ones that I've been watching, and Josh Adams does a tremendous job with those. Oh, really? Are they yeah, good? They're pretty good. Oh, cool. So, yeah, that would be a neat a neat thing about doing Elixir. And, and he starts at the beginning with Elixir. Oh, good. So you don't have to, like, know a lot going in? Right. So what I usually do is I'll watch the video, and then I'll go duplicate what he did. You know, the first one is setting up Elixir on your machine, and that one might be a little out of date. But then, like, the next couple, you know, he gets into variable assignments and, you know, basic types and uh, pattern matching and stuff like that. And so, the, yeah. That's, that's awesome. Yeah. But anyway, you were saying, sorry, I keep interrupting you. Oh, no, 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 not at all. Yeah, it, one of the languages we're looking at, Rust, uh, I mentioned before, the documentation's not really there yet. And it's kind of scary if you, you try to look at it. I have in the past. 
and you you grab a tutorial or something and then you start running into problems almost immediately because Rust is evolving so fast. I think it's finally starting to stabilize in the core. The libraries are still changing uh, quite a bit, according to Steve Klobnik, who I asked on Twitter. So that, that one would be tough if we choose that because, you know, we won't have as good a documentation. We can't grab, you know, the, the pickaxe-like book because really doesn't exist yet. But that could be part of the fun of learning it, too, which we talked about is you'd be kind of trailblazing and whatever we can figure out from the, you know, the various stuff that's out there. And maybe we could write a blog post or two that might actually help a few people out, you know, get started. Uh, so there's some appeal to that, too. Yeah, I think it's interesting with Rust in particular. Isn't Rust being built by Mozilla? Yes, it is. And uh, Mozilla has done a tremendous job with documentation on JavaScript. And so I find it interesting that it, you know, but I guess it's just that the language is so much in flux. Yeah, and, and they are working on documentation a lot. I don't mean to uh, demean their project at all. By the way, I guess I should probably make this statement. Um, I've said like tons of things about tons of different languages here. Uh, in case it's not obvious, I don't really know these languages. So take everything I said today with a huge grain of salt. <laughs> this is somebody from the outside looking in, so I may have got many details wrong. But that uh, Mozilla is actually now spending a lot of energy trying to get Rust documentation up to speed. They hired Steve Klobnik, uh, which is the reason I asked him to uh, for six months to beef up their their guides and their tutorials and stuff like that, mm -hmm. documentation. So, uh, yeah, that's exactly what he's working on right now. But, the, you know, I think it's cool that there's a lot of things, there, there can be a lot of different reasons to learn a language like we just talked about, you know, being able to, um, you know, get the main book and learn lots of stuff, that's cool. But uh, like I said, it also can be appealing to be, you know, play with something in its early stages, as long as you recognize that's what you're getting into and there will be a fair bit of pain involved mm -hmm. with that. Yeah, I think that that can be fun too. Well, the, the other thing is, is that with a lot of these, I mean, the approach in Elixir is different from the approach in Node.js, which is different from the approach in Ruby. And even within Ruby, the approach is different in Sinatra versus Rails or Padrino or whatever other framework you want to use. And to me, I look at them all as kind of different tools and you can actually go out and, you know, mix and match them. I mean, you know, a lot of companies have a polyglot setup where they, you know, they use Node.js to compile their static assets, or they use Node.js to handle things that make more sense to have a more asynchronous, evented system drive it, as opposed to, you know, something more like Rails, or people go over and they use Elixir because the Erlang virtual machine and the way that it manages processes and actors allows it to respond really, really efficiently to things. And so, you know, the polyglot isn't just to bend your mind, but a lot of times there's a really practical reason for adding part of your infrastructure in a different in a different language or system. That's a great point. Like, um, you had a great example there with the asset pipeline needs a a JavaScript engine to do the compiling that it does in Rails, you know, because that's JavaScript. It's working with JavaScript, so it's easier to do in surprise JavaScript. Uh, really good point. And, and like you say, if you're going to work on some low level heavy server thing, like if, if you're going to have a component of your web app that's maybe doing, you know, over, uh, what do they call them? Web sockets or something and, and having some interactions with those, you can have much, you know, heavier server needs than your typical HTTP server. And probably something like Erlang is going to be a lot more smooth at, if you have a significant volume of traffic at handling something like that. So yeah, there's no reason you can't use uh, multiple things every day. I mean, I'm sure even most people listening to this podcast who are uh, Rails developers and write web applications for a living, how many technologies do you use to use that? I mean, just, you know, Ruby, then with everything Rails adds, yeah, I assume you probably write some JavaScript, you know, HTML, CSS. To deploy, so you wind up putting Bash... Right. And, and other things into your um, Capistrano. Exactly. So there's always tons of tools involved. And I've also heard a lot with the move toward SOA architecture or microservices, similar things like that, where you break big applications down into lots of smaller applications. Uh, sometimes the different components 
can be written in a completely different language. And that may make perfect sense from a, oh, well, this component does this, and that's more suited to this particular language. It's not, uh, you know, mm-hmm. not that it's not possible in other languages, but it's just easier, smoother in this language. And or we just have different developers working on it, and the different developers have different tastes and favorite things they like to do. So, you know, this developer preferred to write it in Clojure or whatever. And I think that can be totally fine with caveats. Like, obviously, you don't want everything put in a different language that only one person knows or something like that. But Yeah, I was going to say, I mean, there there are drawbacks to that, and that is is that you know, if you have a team of three working on one thing in a language that nobody else in the company's using and they all quit or get hit by a bus, then, you know, somebody's got to come in and pick up the slack. That's a good point. Yeah. Um, and the other thing is, is that a lot of times in the SOAs that I've set up, you can cheat a little bit if they're all in the same language because you can, uh, you know, you can hit the interfaces, you know, more directly or in a more standardized way. Whereas if they're in different languages, you wind up, you really have to hit them, you know, by making an HTTP call over to the other uh, service because they're not completely alike. But right. at the same time, I mean, you know, that's usually a healthy thing if you're doing a complete, you know, acceptance test on the system. Right. Or you can introduce some kind of intermediary that, that probably exists in both systems, mm-hmm. like RabbitMQ or something. Right. You could queue your messages into RabbitMQ, which probably going to have a driver on both sides. You That's know. true. Yeah, and then I, you you can break it apart there because you just test that it got into the queue and then you test when it comes out of the queue that it does the right thing. Right. And I mean, maybe we should even add here that since we're kind of talking about this, you know, of, of the capabilities of different languages, sometimes I, I find it's important to remind myself that all these programming languages that we're discussing, they're all Turing complete which means they're all capable of doing the same things, right? You can write an actor model in Ruby, uh, and it's been done, right? I think celluloid, celluloid is kind yep. of, yeah, kind of that. Y- you can do these things in Ruby. It's probably not as smooth as it's going to be in Erlang or Elixir, where the language was thought out with that in mind. You know, it was pushed in that direction from the get-go, uh, but you can do those things. So there's definitely a factor of comfort to doing something or just feel of something. You know, some things are uh, better. We've seen and talked about in the past, uh, I think, is it Michael Feathers who wrote the blog post that said something like he really liked functional languages for the real low-level stuff in servers, and then as you got higher in the stack, he preferred to switch over to object-oriented languages, mm-hmm. you know, because for him that felt correct. You know, it was easier to reason about the low-level stuff and the functional languages, and it was easier to handle your, your higher-level business logic and object stuff, and that's uh, I think that's mostly a preference. You can handle business logic and closure. Uh, you can write low-level servers in Ruby. You can, you know, whip open socket and handle everything manually if you want to. Yep. Now I do have a question for you. One of the reasons that I, I've really admired you over the years is your deep knowledge of Ruby. And so I'm curious, you know, if you get into a language and you really want to develop that sort of deep understanding of the language and of the available APIs in the language or the available libraries in the, in the language. What, what did you do to kind of get to the point where you're at? That's a good question. I don't know any language as deeply as I know Ruby. I don't know the others like that. Um, but I do have a couple of tricks. One of the reasons, or, or I guess there's several reasons that I know Ruby kind of at an almost encyclopedic level. One is that you should find the API reference of like the standard libraries or whatever and just read it. Like literally like a book, start at the top and just work your way through. That may sound like the most boring thing ever. Probably it is to people who are less geeky than I am, but I actually find it really gives me a ton of ideas because, you know, you have all these standard libraries that ship with a language and they're built to do a lot of things for you. But until you've gone through and actually like read the methods, how do you know what's there and what it can do for you? You know, so just reading through them, I, a note I didn't say memorize. You don't have to memorize, uh, but 
just, you know, reading through them to, like, get familiar with them uh, is a great thing of, like, oh, I didn't know you could write easily write that kind of stuff with language XYZ. It turns out there's a standard library for it. It'll do most of the work. And then, you know, later when you run into a problem that's roughly shaped like that, you'll be like, ah, I saw a library for that. And you go back and figure out the details. Um, so that's one thing I think that helps. In Ruby, it was running the Ruby quiz for three years that made me so, you know, uh, get into such deep knowledge of it because the people that submit to those contests, they use every trick in the book. And so I had to, you know, look them up every single time or I couldn't figure out how the program worked and stuff. So I, I'm not sure I would recommend running the Ruby quiz because that's a massive amount of work. But try to find a contest like that or something and participate. And most importantly, read the other submissions that were submitted and figure out how they work because they won't work like yours and you'll have to look up well, what is this construct? I didn't even know this is legal in the language or whatever. And so those, I think, help a lot. And then just, I was also on the Ruby Talk mailing list for years during its heyday. Um, and that can be part of the fun of getting into a newer language. Some of the ones we've been discussing here, I would say probably Elixir and Rust fall most more into this category. Uh, but the languages that are still pretty new the communities are much smaller and more intimate. And so if you get on those mailing lists and stuff, you usually, uh, you know, interact with people who, who know it pretty well and have a, a good set of knowledge to share with you. And you'd be surprised how quickly you can pick up tricks that way. So in my time on the Ruby Talk mailing list, I was regularly interacting with people like uh, Jim Wyrick and Dave Thomas and Glenn Vanderberg and Avdi and, you know, uh, all of that. And just, you know, all of those people had tons of knowledge and taught me so much so fast. That's really interesting. Really, really interesting. And I think I think those still apply, you know, go go find. I mean, reading the documentation, it's still there, you know, and uh Getting involved, like you said, in doing the coding exercises or, you know, Ruby quiz or something like it, you know, also really applies. Uh, the last one with the community, um, it's, it's interesting because the communities are still out there. Um, you know, I know that the Ruby Lang mailing list isn't as, as it used to be, you know, and there's not as much in there, but I mean, there are other communities. I mean, we have one, uh, with Ruby Rogues Parlay and there are others out there where, you know, these sorts of discussions take place by being involved, you know, on IRC or whatever. Um, yeah, you can definitely pick up some things there. Yeah, I think so. The interesting thing about community mailing lists and stuff is that that golden period is when the, the language is getting big enough to be noticed by people, but isn't yet huge. So right. once rails drop, it just brought a massive influx of people and then the signal to noise ratio on the mailing list turned upside down. And then, you know, all of those people that I named pretty much moved on to other places because it was too hard to keep up with and that the value of keeping up with it was much lower. Mm -hmm. um, so that, that trick works better in earlier languages. Uh, but like you said, once that happens, then groups fragment out and there, there are still strong groups if you can find them. So like Seattle RB happens to be one of the ones people talk about often because you've got, you know, Aaron Patterson, Ryan Davis, Eric Hodel, you know, lots of uh, people there that have a lot of knowledge and then just a, a fun group and they crank out a lot of software. Join one of those groups, even if you don't live in Seattle, you know, who cares? You join one of those groups and um, get your your great community fixed that way if you're learning a more established language. And um, the if they don't have a Ruby quiz-like thing, just go take the Ruby quiz problems and work them. Uh, the only minus there is that you won't get to see the solutions of others, but you can cheat on that. Uh, just work one and send it to a mailing list, one of those great mailing lists, and be like, yeah, I worked this problem, you know, from here to see how it was done in closure or whatever. What do you guys think? And then some people will probably jump in and solve it a different way, and you can kind of see that anyway. 
Yep. That's mostly what I did with Ruby Quiz, actually. I stole the idea from uh, Pearl's Quiz of the Week, and a lot of the Ruby Quiz problems, if you look back over them, are some of my favorites from uh, Pearl's Quiz of the Week, where I would steal them and be like, let's do them in Ruby. <laughs> nice. So, yeah, there's lots of there's lots of great ways to learn languages, and we're lucky now that we have so many new avenues like the videos and stuff to, to get mm-hmm. more information. Yep. So one other thing I, I want to talk about really quickly. So Dave Thomas, we've mentioned, you know, he said, learn a new programming language a year. I think he said it in the Pragmatic Programmers book. Right. It seems that there is kind of a profusion of languages these days. I mean, you know, we've got Rust and all the ones that you mentioned. I can probably name, if I sat down and thought about it, you know, four or five languages that transpile into JavaScript. There are all kinds of people who are fans of the various ones. You know, it seems like that there are new languages coming out to solve different problems. Is is this going to be harder or is it just going to make the ecosystem more interesting? I think that's a good question. I think we're currently seeing a kind of second language explosion in computers. And I think that's because, you know, we've made it really, really far on what we had up to now. Uh, but at the same time, things are changing. Like, um, you know, pretty much the existing computer world is to some degree written on C. You know, while that was great and that got us pretty far, parts of that are horrible, like pointer arithmetic everywhere and, and you know, totally unsafe and buffer overruns and stuff like that that, you know, plague things like OpenSSL or things like that. So I, I think we're ready for a more modern low-level language, which is why I think you're seeing things like uh, Rust and Golang, and I'm pretty sure there are others uh, that are trying to be uh, more modern uh, low-level languages. So I, I think we're seeing that. Also, we finally hit the wall of just doubling computer speed all the time, right? Mm-hmm. And it didn't happen anymore. So now we're throwing in more processors, and that's how we're making them faster and faster, which means concurrency went from that thing operating system programmers do to that thing we all do, right? You know, concurrency is almost kind of the same way. It's like, well, you can do it with threads, but, you know, mm-hmm. it's really painful, uh, you know, if you're sharing memory and stuff. Uh, so now we're seeing lots of very modern takes on that. Like, Closure, you know, takes the idea of, oh, threads are fine as long as everything's immutable, you know, or yeah. Elixir uh, and Erlang, you know, use a really modern process model and stuff like that. So I think we're seeing this explosion of languages because modern computing is changing and and the languages are catching up with what computing looks like now. And that might, that might be pretty interesting in the future. Like when we had uh, Julia Evans on, she talked about, you know, fiddling around with a kernel in Rust. You know, how cool would that be if the next major operating system isn't written in C? You know, that'd be kind of neat. Um, uh, to answer your question about how does that make things harder or, or easier, I don't know. That's a really good question. Uh, it, to me, it kind of feels like things are getting harder because there's amazing new languages being released like every month and I'm like I should go learn that I should go learn that but it's it's already exceeded the point where I can keep up with it mm-hmm. right uh, and I think Avdi surprised all of us when he mentioned Idris on the show recently and we were like what did you make that up but he didn't it's a real thing you know yep so I, in a way it kind of makes it harder because you're not going to be able to visit like all the major languages anymore I don't think we're passing out of that era uh, and you're going to have to pick and choose the ones you actually sit down and fool fiddle with. Uh, but at the same time, with all this new language growth, there's lots of great learning resources, you know, like the videos and stuff that have become popular. And, and since lots of people are picking up new languages, we're getting better and better about onboarding them. So I think, I think that gets better. So I think it's a kind of a mixed bag. Yep. I was going to ask you a question about what other languages features you wish they would steal and put into Ruby, but we kind of did an episode on that. I am kind of curious about, um, so one thing that I run into some, sometimes is, uh, you know, people, they kind of get stuck in whatever language they work in, you know, Java or C, 
uh, what is it? She's C sharp or Ruby or whatever. Right. And so a new language comes along that looks really cool and they kind of shy away from it because it's, they, they have so much tied up in the other ecosystem. And so, you know, they, they worry that if they, they move away from Ruby or Java or whatever it is that they're going to lose some of that, you know, or they're not going to have the status or they're not going to have, you know, they're going to have to relearn the toolkits and relearn the other things. I, I'm not sure if I have a good answer for that other than just go try it because it'll be good for you. Do you have a better answer than I do? I think I'm largely with you. I'm like, ah, get over it. You know, like, I mean, in a way, you're right. Like, I admit that I don't know any language as well as Ruby. And I admit that it's still my favorite to this day with, uh, you know, all the others I've played with so far. It's what I'll program in, in my spare time to enjoy, you know. But that said, like, it's not the language you know. It's what you loaded into your head while you were learning it. That's the valuable thing. Mm-hmm. And the language is is more just an outlet for that kind of knowledge. You know, as you go to other languages, you will learn new things and you'll learn that, you'll load that into your head. And yeah, in some ways, you'll be kind of starting over. You won't be familiar with that language's standard libraries and stuff anymore. So you won't be like... You know, oh, I can just fire up Webrick here and I'm serving pages or whatever. You won't know that anymore. But in some ways, that's a good thing because you'll go over to that other language and you'll ask dumb questions like, you know, uh, oh, well, where's your Webrick? And we'll be like, yeah, we don't throw everything on the web. You know, that's mm-hmm. a Ruby thing. You know, we build a desktop app because we have whatever, you know, whatever. And that'll be great because it'll expose you to other systems, other ways of doing things. And you also won't be starting over, over. The hard part in learning to program is learning how to uh, think like a computer. And you've already done that part, right? No matter which language you learned. Uh, computers are really, really stupid and they have no context and they only do exactly what you tell them, usually to an extremely painful degree. <laughs> and, you know, learning how to express things to a computer that actually makes sense, that's the tricky part. And you'll still have that when you move to a different language. You know, you won't be starting at the bottom bottom, or maybe you are, but you'll climb through the levels much faster, right? So it's kind of like when you play Diablo the first time, you know, or whatever, you go through it the first time and you're kind of figuring everything out. But when you're like, oh, I want to start over and try this as the barbarian, once you've been through the dungeon before, you know which bosses to expect where, you can prepare and go through and do it much quicker, right? Yeah. And it's a similar thing like that, that you um, you know what's going on and you can pick things up quicker. And some things will be really foreign and feel strange, and that's good. That's great. That's how you know you're doing it right, because you're mm-hmm. figuring out new ways of doing things. Like, if you really are a, a Ruby person, going to a langu- language like Clojure or Elixir or uh, Haskell uh, is going to be pretty shocking to you, like, because it's functional, you know, um, to varying degrees. Elixir is going to be kind of close to Ruby and Clojure a little farther still, and then Haskell really far, in my opinion. And so that as you get into that world, you'll really start to understand what this functional programming thing is about and how do people do that. And that's a good thing. But yeah, there's there's that fear that I think you're starting over and you'll go backwards. But I think really you should get a, get over that. And it's not like, oh, once you write a little Haskell, oh, sorry, you're not a Rubyist anymore. You have to give us your insignia ring back or <laughs> something, you know. We don't Wait, there are rings? Yeah, right, you don't have one? Yeah, so we don't take that away from you. You're still allowed to write Ruby. You're allowed to go learn new things. You're allowed to come back and, and use those new things in Ruby. So it kind of adds to the fun. Yep. Well, there's so many useful things written in these other languages, too. I mean, you know, we, we've talked about several of them on this show and in other episodes. I mean, uh, RabbitMQ, for example, is written in Erlang. You have Docker is written in Go. Um, you know, and, and you could go down the list um, you know, Emacs Lisp is written in, or Emacs is written in C, but, you know, to configure it, you write Emacs Lisp. You yeah, know, so. Emacs is kind of just a 
There's a little bit of C at the core that basically builds a Lisp machine. Yeah. And then the rest of Emacs is written in Emacs Lisp. <laughs> yep. So, yeah. So you have all of these different things. And, you know, so if you really did truly focus on just one language and ignored everything else, you would miss all of the other richness that is still part of the ecosystem and and make up great tools within the ecosystem of that language. And so, yeah, you know, go go take a chance on something else. And I think that, you know, you say you have this fear that you'll be totally starting over. If you have that fear, that's fine. I think we all have it to some extent. But you also better have the fear that staying where you are is making you irrelevant. Yes. Um, because that's kind of true, right? I mean, computers grow and change over time. And the big languages today... They're not going to be the big languages tomorrow. Like, I mean, I hate to disappoint our listeners, but Ruby is, you know, probably a little past its golden age now. And, and you know, it'll have a st- stable period where it's in pretty heavy use. And then someday it'll probably be on the decline because uh, things have moved on and people are doing things a different way. And so if you're not, you know, playing around with this new uh, area of languages, then when that comes, you really will be starting over with no choices. You know, it's better to, uh, learn and grow as the, as industry changes. Yep. Well, and I, th- I think a good example of this, I mean, in the Ruby world, you know, we mostly do web. There, there are some other areas that Ruby kind of has found a home in, but let's just talk web for a minute. I mean, when when I was in high school, I was playing with HTML and CSS, put little snippets of JavaScript in and just copy it when I needed it. And and then it went from that to you actually had to have a, a backend database and, um, you know, you were using something like PHP and, uh, you know, you, you did a little bit more with uh, JavaScript, maybe with, what was it, prototype? And, and you know, and then things moved along to, um, you know, to jQuery. And so you had a lot more uh, DOM manipulation and things like that. And so the skill set changed again. You know, you got more rapid development with things like Rails. And then, you know, now it's it's almost a prerequisite that you understand not only like a backend database like MySQL, but in a lot of cases, you know, a much more fitting thing is one of the NoSQL databases. And so you're probably better off understanding a relational database and a NoSQL database of some kind, you know, and then you have your backend framework and then you need to understand uh, JavaScript and you need to understand, you know, jQuery DOM manipulation. But, you know, it's getting to the point now where you actually need to know a front end framework. And then you've got Ember, Ember, Angular, Knockout. And then on top of that, a lot of the things out there are being built on grid systems, or actual frameworks like Bootstrap or Zurb Foundation. And so, you know, and this is kind of the discussion we had on JavaScript Jabber that will also come out this next, or at the same time this one does. But, you know, it's, you have all of these skills. And so, you know, if you had just stopped at learning uh, HTML and CSS or just stopped at learning MySQL, PHP, and HTML, CSS, you know, with a little bit of JavaScript, you'd be left way behind because at this point, things have moved ahead to the point where people kind of expect web applications to feel like applications. Right. And, and they're, you know, in the front end, the front end for so long has been totally JavaScript. I mean, you know, almost any way you go. Uh, but we're slowly see that starting to change. Like, I've played with Dart quite a bit lately and enjoyed that. And the reason you can pretty much use Dart uh, now if you want to is that it comes with a transpiler to JavaScript. So it can go to uh, JavaScript and then you can serve that. It's big code, so it's not something you're going to use on uh, you know, just any old site because you're going to have much bigger assets. But if you've got a complicated front end, then who cares if you have to pay that big price to, you know, set it up. The advantages are that you can write much more Ruby-like, I would say, you know, stuff in the front end. And I I find that more enjoyable. But And then we talked about how uh, closure script gives you a way to, you know, write some closure in the front end and stuff like that. So, uh, even though JavaScript is still kind of involved in those examples, 
we're starting to see examples of way to, ways to write front-end apps that are uh, different. So, you know, right now, JavaScript's reign in the front-end is totally undisputed. I have, I have no mm-hmm. you know doubts about that. But is it going to be that way in 10 years? I don't know. You know, maybe yeah. not. Well, the other thing is, you, you say more Ruby-like code, and to, what I'm hearing is that people are using these higher-level languages, like Dart or CoffeeScript or whatever that abstract away some of the the stuff that you don't really want to deal with in JavaScript. Yeah, that's a good point. More higher level. When I um when I called Dart more Ruby like, I was actually meaning like um that the class system is is more like Ruby yeah. and feels more like that. Yeah. Right. And and really what it is is it compiles it to a prototypal inheritance which JavaScript uses, but you don't have to worry about it. And it's it's interesting that, you know, I mean in ten years it may still be JavaScript has, you know, the you know, the the browser market. You know, Dave Thomas also said that the browser is is dying and we're just kind of perpetuating it. And that may be true too, you know, so maybe JavaScript will just kind of fade into obsolescence on the front end in that way at least. And it won't matter, and so we'll be using these languages to transpile other stuff. Or we may increase the complexity to the point where writing it in JavaScript is just too painful. And that, so by that un- one comment Dave made about the browser is dying. There's been an awesome discussion on Parley about yes. that. Like, ah, oh, what did he mean? Ah, it was great. Yeah. <laughs> it it was a good discussion. And and I think I think it is something we're thinking about. I mean, you know, where are we going to be in 10 years? Do you want to be maintaining the legacy systems that are still using uh, the old technology because that's all you know? Or do you want to have the other options to move ahead and be on the, the cutting edge? Right. That's why it's good to learn things you don't know. Go to conferences you you don't normally go to. Go to a Go conference because you've been sitting down playing with Go for a little while. You know, they're going to talk about totally different things that you are not going to see talked about regularly at a Ruby conference or one of the mini polyglot conferences that are so yep. good, you know, like strange loop or, or things like that. Um, you know, get, get to places, get outside of your comfort zone, you know, in programming and learn new things. If you've never done any front end programming, do that. I admit that that was me. Like, uh, two years ago, I really sat down and finally started to learn JavaScript well. And, uh, you know, I just, until then, I had, uh, done the, uh, I'll Google this and figure out how to do it way or front end programming, you know, and, uh, and then I finally sat down and learned how it works and it gave me a much better appreciation for what's going on up there, you know? Yep. So I've been waiting for the end, to the end of the show to ask you this, but have you actually picked the language that you guys are going to study? <laughs> we haven't. I think we're down to two. Uh, I think we've uh, narrowed it down to Rust and Clojure at this point. Elixir, I don't really remember why we decided not to go with that. Uh, I think it was just uh, only one of us was kind of familiar with that one and so it didn't really appeal to the other one go we i think we mostly knocked out because and this is totally our reasoning no you know everybody else will have their own opinions but i think we knocked it out because we felt like go was more just a modern imperative language so it's you know like c but way more modern you know and and stuff so we didn't know if it would be stretching our brain as much as some of the other choices. Mm-hmm. And we thought Rust had kind of an, a, a little bit to us more exciting uh, feature set. So, you know, I think that um, is what appealed to us there. Although the downside is we're going to have to figure it all out, you know, uh, with, with dicey documentation. And so, then. So you're voting for the maximum brain twist? Yeah, right. Exactly. I mean, it's kind of the whole point, right? Is to figure things out. And then closure, I think, is just cool in many ways. And then, you know, also has a pretty rich ecosystem that we could get into and probably learn quite a few new things along the way. Mm-hmm. Um, so those are the two we're playing with now. Uh, my buddy's on vacation right now, so we haven't talked about it uh, too much. And who knows, maybe we'll flip a coin and end up picking between the two. And I assume, you know, given enough time, we would eventually get to all of them, you know, but who knows how it all works out. So you have to ask me later, which one we actually played with. 
Yeah, I'm. I'm cur- I'll be curious to know that. I'm also um, a little curious. So, are you planning on doing this for an entire year, or just until you feel like you've gained some proficiency and learned what you want to learn from it, and then move on? Yeah, it's a good question. I think usually when I play with a language, you know, it, like I said in the past, I've always done it by myself. Erlang was probably the one I played with the longest outside of Ruby, and and, and of course JavaScript, which I pretty much have to use for my job. But I, I played with it for about six months or something, enough that I felt like I had a pretty good feel for it. And at that point, you know, you end up making a decision like, oh, I'm going to have to build something significant in this or decide I've gone far enough and that's good enough for me. And in the case of Erlang, it was good enough for me uh, at that point. So I pretty much haven't played with it uh, since very much. I, I think you got to at least give yourself, I think maybe Dave Thomas said like three months or something is a good period of time. I, I, I think you definitely at least need a few months. You know, you should build a project in it, like Chuck said, of, of not, it doesn't have to be ridiculous complexity, but, you know, also not a toy, uh, you know, problem, but solve some significant problem in it. And then, and then you can make the decision of whether or not you want to keep going or not. I like it. I like your answer. All right. Well, should we do the picks? Or do you yeah, have anything else you want to? All right. No, it, was a, it was a fun discussion. Thanks for letting me talk about my tweets. Yeah, no problem. <laughs> <laughs> I think it was good too. And, and yeah, it's kind of pushing me to go back and pick up a new language now that I'm kind of done with Scheme. Yeah. Yeah. I'd be interested to know what you pick. I assume Swift or something in your future. Yeah. I'm probably leaning toward either Swift or Elixir. Or two that I've been looking at. I've also been looking at going back and doing a little bit more JavaScript and kind of deepening my knowledge there. So it'll probably be one of the three. Very cool. All right. Well, let's go and do the picks. You want to go first? Sure. I just have two. When this episode airs next week, it will be just before the start of the ICFP programming contest, the 2014 edition. This is my favorite programming contest. I've done it almost every year for a scary number of years now because I'm getting old. But it's the International Conference on Functional Programming does this contest. I'm pretty sure I've picked it in the past. They do this before they have their conference, and then the results of this contest are discussed at their conference, uh, which is really cool. Uh, Don't let the functional programming and the name scare you away. They encourage and welcome entries using any language platform, whatever. So you can totally use Ruby or anything else you want. And what they do is they release a big problem. It's usually, you know, 10 to 15 pages printed or something. And you read through the problem spec and you have 72 hours to, you know, uh, build a solution. And there's usually some kind of soaring system involved to see who wins and all of that. I do terrible. I never win. uh, But I'm like, you know, if I get in the like, you know, top 50%, I feel really, really good, um, which I've only done that a couple of times. But participating makes you feel good. It's a, it's a hard problem. And if you can come up with a workable solution, uh, then it makes you feel great. Don't do it alone. It's huge. Get friends, lots of friends, get help. I could totally recommend that. But it starts, uh, when this episode comes out, it starts in the U.S. on Friday morning, and it will be done on Monday morning, 72 hours later. So if that sounds interesting to you, I'll put the uh, link to their page in the show notes, and you can go check it out. My other pick is just this interesting thing I found for MacBook users, MacBook, MacBook Air, and stuff like that. They have that SD card slot. And I don't think people use that very often. You you know, you may use it sometimes to move data back and forth from your various devices, but you probably don't use it a ton. If you don't, there's this insert you can get for it that is like a mini drive. It's got like 128 gigs of space on it, uh, and it fits flush with the computer, so you don't have to have this thing sticking out of the side of your computer. And it's kind of neat looking and stuff, so just... Uh, a cool way to use what's probably an empty hole in your computer most of the time. And I'll put a link to that in the show notes. That's it for me. Very nice. All right. I've got a couple of picks too. I picked this on the show before, but it has really been paying off for me. I've been using Redbooth. Whenever I need Mandy to do something, I usually tell her on Skype, but I've also been putting it in Redbooth. And then I get an email when she's done, which is 
nice because then I don't, I don't I don't have to worry about okay, you know she always gets done what I ask her to do, but this way I know that it's done and then I can just check it off in my head and I don't have to worry about it. So another pick that I have, and this is something that I've been using lately. I picked up a contract where I am updating somebody's copy of Instructure Canvas. And I'm not sure if I've talked about this on the show before, so I'll put a link to that in there as well. But basically, it's an open source learning management system. Um, they use it at colleges and stuff. Anyway, I've been having to rebase. So I've been doing a git rebase of the current uh, stable branch onto their custom branch where they have all their customizations. And I've been using Emacs and Magit mode, and it has been so nice. It's not terrible on the command line, but it's a lot nicer with the tool. So I'm going to pick Magit mode. And then I'm also going to pick Fluid app. Um, I know we've picked this on the show before, but I didn't realize that you could actually pay for it. And the paid version has a couple of features. The one that I've been using the most is that you can use your Fluid app to actually go full screen. And so I've been putting everything full screen and it's been really nice. So, you know, you can do that with Chrome, but I like having it just in its own app so I can use uh, LaunchBar to find it because it searches my applications folder and then I can just launch it and full screen it and then it just comes up. Oh, I also have another pick and that is this Belkin docking station. It's a Thunderbolt docking station. One thing I didn't realize when I bought it is that it has two Thunderbolt ports on it and I thought that those were two Thunderbolt ports that I could use but you actually have to use one of them to hook it up so you have one extra Thunderbolt port. But I've moved everything off of my Mac Pro that's sitting on my desk, the big cheese grater one. I don't have one of the new sleek black little ones, but I've got that big thing sitting on my desk. Anyway, I moved everything over to my laptop because the the experience has just been a little bit nicer. And so I just plug it into that docking station. I have to plug my second monitor into the second Thunderbolt on my laptop. But yeah, I plug two things into my laptop. Um, it gives me wired internet. Um, it gives me that extra Thunderbolt port, so I don't actually lose a Thunderbolt port using this thing. Um, it has three USB ports on it, a Firewire 